Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I know there's a lot of visitors with us this morning, and if you're new to Prince Avenue, it is our normal habit to be walking through books of the Bible. We find ourselves this morning in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, which means next week we'll be in verses 6 and continuing on throughout the end of chapter 4. I want to tell you this. Uh, if you are, maybe you're just a college student, you're visiting this morning, whatever may be the case, we're entering into some very, very practical and exciting verses of Scripture in Philippians 4. We're going to come back next week and talk about being anxious for nothing. I know no one needs that, but just in case you do, uh, next week would be a good time to come. We're going to be talking about uh, what it means to set our mind on things above. The week after that, we're going to be talking about the secret of contentment. And what it means to be content in the Lord. So there's a lot of uh, good text coming up in the next few weeks. I hope you'll be here as we walk through this together. As you study through the life of the Apostle Paul, one of the things you'll notice, which I think is one of the most remarkable things about the Apostle Paul, is that his life seems to be marked by many seemingly incompatible realities. His life is a life of paradox, meaning that he will say at one time that he is experiencing this while at the same time experiencing the opposite. He will say that his life is a testimony of this while also saying his life is a testimony of something that is completely opposite. His life is a life of paradox. Not only do we just see this in his life and in his writing, but he makes it really clear. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, we are treated as imposters. Yet we are true, we are unknown, and yet well-known, dying, and behold, we live, punished, and yet not killed. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, yet making many rich. We have nothing, but we possess everything. 2 Corinthians 6. You say, well, Paul, how is it true that you have nothing and yet possess everything? And his life is a testimony to all of these seemingly conflicting realities, a life of paradox, which in reality, all of our lives as lives of believers are a life of paradox. There may be no place we see all of those paradoxes more clearly than in his relationship with the church at Philippi. Specifically, that one statement, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Think about that. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Do you you remember how the church at Philippi was started? That Paul is supernaturally led by the Holy Spirit to Philippi, the opposite direction that he wanted to go. He then goes outside of the city where there's some women gathered together for a Bible study. He preaches the gospel. One wealthy Asian lady by the name of Lydia gave her life to Christ. She then took Paul to her house where her whole household household was baptized and came to Christ. It tells us shortly after that, Paul walked in and saw a poor Greek slave girl who was possessed by a demonic spirit. She was owned by a group of men who were gaining profit from her, but because of her demonic possession was able to tell fortunes. Paul saw her, felt pity on her, cast out the demonic spirit from her, and she became free. The result was that those who owned her were furious at Paul. They captured him. They brought him before the officials who publicly humiliated him, beat him publicly, and then threw him into prison. 
And yet it tells us in Acts 16 that Paul and Silas, while in prison, were singing hymns and praising God. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And here he is again, 10 years later, writing from a different prison, a Roman prison, where we know by his own testimony, he is living chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, and yet pens a letter which is known to us as the letter of joy. In 104 verses, there are 13 references to joy. Over and over in the book of Philippians, Paul is talking to us about the depth not only of the joy that we should experience, but the joy that he is experiencing while imprisoned. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul's life, as strange as it may sound, is marked by deep sorrow and unshakable joy. And so here he is in Philippians writing, listen, as a suffering man to suffering people, commanding them to rejoice. Now again, this would be powerful no matter what. It is in fact the word of God. But there's something more powerful about Paul commanding us to rejoice. Because if it wasn't Paul, we could say, well, easy for you to say. But with Paul, we can't say easy for you to say because rejoicing could not have been easy for Paul. But yet he's a rejoicing man commanding the suffering people in Philippi And the Lord this morning, through him, commanding every one of us, no matter what your circumstance, no matter how deep your sorrow, no matter what is going on in your life, God is saying to you, you must learn to rejoice. This is God's aim for all of us. I mean, it was just in Philippians 1.25 when the Apostle Paul says, my hope for you is that I would remain and minister to you. Why? Listen, two things. For your progress and joy in the faith. I've told you this before, but the verse that God has given me for my ministry here at Prince Avenue, as long as God keeps me here, is that I would exist for your progress and your joy. I want you to grow in your relationship with Christ, and I want you to increase in your joy through greater intimacy with Jesus Christ. So he says, when he begins in Philippians chapter 4, after all kinds of admonitions, simply this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, I really believe that this verse, particularly verse 4, is worth a whole sermon for many reasons. I think it's worth a whole sermon because we need it. All of us need to be reminded of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. I think we need it because Jesus died that we might experience it. He died that we might enter into his joy, that we might understand Jesus himself having sorrow and joy at the same time. I think it's necessary for us to spend a week on it because we are surrounded by people who have an insatiable desire for joy. You have an insatiable desire for joy, and it may be that through a series of disappointments, you have kind of squelched that desire for joy, but the truth is, I know it's there. Listen, you know why? Because God has put it there. God has made you hungry for joy. God has made you long for joy. God has made you long for an experience of joy that the world cannot give you. And the reason he's put it in your heart is so that you might find that joy and desire for joy driving you to the only place that it is found, and that is in Jesus Christ. Just think about you college students who have come back and 
if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be on campus all in the next few months and you're surrounded by people with this longing for joy and trying to find it in a thousand different things and they will only find it in Christ and God wants to fill you with it so that you can manifest it to them. Now, what do we mean when we talk about joy? Because this text is a call to joy. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a call to experience joy. Let me give you a a definition of joy. I want to encourage you to write this down. These things are for your application and meditation. So uh, we are beginning a conversation. Every Sunday morning we start a conversation. I help you get the conversation started and then you continue it throughout the week until we meet next week. So let me give you my definition of joy. I encourage you to write this down. Here it is. Joy is a deep feeling of delight in God produced by the Holy Spirit. Joy is a deep feeling, it is an emotion, it is a feeling, a deep feeling of delight in God produced by the Holy Spirit. Joy is a deep feeling of delight in God produced by the Holy Spirit. And I'll show you how I've come to that definition. What I want you to see this morning, what I encourage you to write down is this little verse right here actually gives us four surprising truths about your joy. Four surprising truths about joy that you may have never thought of before. Four surprising truths about joy. Write these down. I'm going to give you the first one. The first one is this. Joy matters to God. Joy matters to God. God cares about your experience of joy. He's deeply concerned with your joy. You cannot read the Bible and deny the simple truth that God cares about your joy. So you care about your joy. You want to be joyful. Let me tell you something. There is no one that cares more about your experience of joy than God himself. God's the one who put the desire there. God's the one who'd want to fulfill the desire. God cares about your joy. Joy matters to God. Some of you may be familiar with an author by the name of Randy Alcorn. He's written some incredible books, one of my favorite authors. And a few years ago, he wrote a book on happiness. Now, he's well known for a book he also wrote on heaven, which is kind of the definitive book Uh, 500 pages on heaven, and uh, he then came out a couple of years later, and he wrote, listen, a 500-page book called Happiness. And what he talks about is the way in which all throughout Scripture, there is this theme of happiness that God wants us to understand. He tells us in that book that there are over 2,700 references to joy in some some, uh, form or fashion throughout the Bible. 2,700 references to joy. Now, He gives a lot of examples of this. My favorite example of this is him talking about the way in which God designed the yearly calendar for his people. So God had a people that he had set apart for his name and for his glory, the people of Israel, and he determined the way in which they were going to live. They lived under his authority, and he put a calendar for them. On that calendar had 30 days set apart specifically for feasting and celebration. 30 days a year, specifically for the people to stop what they're doing and celebrate. He then says, if you take the special occasions as well as the Sabbath days and you put them all together, the calendar that God put together, listen, had 80 days a year set aside for feasting and celebration. How many of you would like to adopt the Old Testament calendar? That's about three months a year for feasting and celebration. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Ryan, I think about your new smoker you just got and how we could use that on those 80 days of feasting and celebration. I mean, this is unbelievable. 80 days a year in which the Lord says to his people, I want you to stop what you're doing and just 
celebrate. Why? Because this really matters to God. Listen to what he says about the Passover in Deuteronomy 16. You shall rejoice in your feast. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in the work of your hands, listen, so that you will be altogether joyful. It matters to him. I could give you hundreds of verses like that where God talks about the way in which joy of his people matters to him. But listen, the reason that we do missions is to spread the joy of the Lord. Psalm 67, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all people. And then he says this, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. What are we doing in missions? We're spreading the joy of the Lord. That's what we're doing. That God desires for all of the nations to rejoice and be glad. Over and over you see this as the heart of God. And you will say, well, well, pastor, that's just the Old Testament. Let me say a couple of things. First of all, do not ever say the words, that's just the Old Testament. That's a really dumb thing to say. <laughs> Anyone who neglects the Old Testament by simply saying that all we need is the New Testament understands nothing about the Word of God and the things of God. And the reason I know that is because Jesus constantly pointing us back to the Old Testament. And when Paul said all scripture is inspired by God, is breathed by God, and is profitable for teaching, for repute, and for, uh, for righteousness, do you know he's not talking about the New Testament? It didn't exist. He's saying the Old Testament is profitable for us, and so it is. And let me tell you, at the very least, and there's tons more than this, so don't get me started, but at the very least, the Old Testament, listen, reveals to us the heart of God, the heart of God. You read through the Old Testament and you know that the heart of God is longing for your joy. Joy matters to God. But, but, but in case you think it's only an Old Testament reality, think about what Jesus said to his disciples. He, he says it in John 15 where he says, these things I have written to you so that your joy may be full, that my joy might be in you and your joy may be full. He says it again in John 16, 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. Jesus is saying, my desire is that in coming into a relationship with you, you might experience a fullness of joy. Now, my favorite New Testament example of this is in Luke 15. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to tell you about it. Three parables in Luke 15. Because the Pharisees are mad at Jesus because he's spending time with sinners. And then Jesus tells them three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. All of the parables are essentially the same. They're making the same point. There's something lost, there's something found. And the third part is this. When that which is lost is found, everyone rejoices. So the lost sheep is found, they throw a party. The lost coin is found, they throw a party. The lost son comes home and they throw a party. And there's only one person in the entire chapter that is not rejoicing that's the the self-righteous son because there's something in the heart of a self-righteous person that doesn't want to give in to joy and there's something in the heart of a self-righteous person that is so consumed with themselves they cannot experience the joy of the lord but everyone except the self-righteous older brother is rejoicing in the lord and what it does is it gives us a little picture of the kingdom and in the kingdom there is joy 
Do you know that for all of eternity, Psalm 16, we will experience the fullness of joy in heaven? And yet Jesus says the kingdom has come upon us now, meaning that what Jesus has come to do is that his kingdom would come and invade your heart when you allow him to be the Lord of your life. And at that very moment, we begin to get little taste of the kingdom. We don't get the fullness of the kingdom, but we get taste of the kingdom. So every time the church gathers is to be a little taste of the kingdom. People getting saved, people repenting, people celebrating and rejoicing. There's joy in the house. Why? Because it's a taste of the kingdom. So someone who's never known Jesus is supposed to walk in here and say, this is unbelievable. And we're to say, yeah, this is the kingdom. That this is a little taste of the kingdom. Jesus has given us these little glimpses of the kingdom so that we might hunger and thirst for it because he cares about our joy. In Romans 14, 17, he says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy matters to God. That's the first one. The second one is this. Write this down. Joy is not optional. Joy is not optional. Joy matters to God and joy is not optional. This is not a suggestion that it would be nice If you could be joyful, I would suggest that. But the Lord is not suggesting, the Lord is commanding. He commands, rejoice in the Lord. Now there are some who say that if you take the idea of praise and what it really means and thanksgiving and what it really means and the command to not fear and all of the implications of that, that this whole idea of rejoicing could be the most often repeated command in all of Scripture. This is deep in the heart of God. I mean, just read the Psalms. Psalm 97, verse 12 says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Do, do you know one of the reasons I, I like there, and we're working on this, all right? We're going to get better at this. One of the reasons I like for us to clap on Sunday morning, and I know we're, we're clapping challenged. I get that. But, um, and one of the reasons I like there to be some shouts of joy, and I know we're challenged in that area as well. And uh, the reason I like for us to feel free and expressive in worship, and you say, well, Josh, you're just expressive. That's true. I get that. But at the same time, it's because there is to be within the people of God a manifestation of the joy of the Lord. People longing for joy want to come into a church that's filled with joy. And it's not pointing anybody to us, it's pointing us to the reality of what they can experience with intimacy with Jesus. And so that has to be the way in which we feel here. There must be a contagious joy about the church. There's hundreds of verses like this. Now look at this one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, I love that that he states it, first of all, in a command. It's a, what we call a present imperative, meaning it's an absolute command, and it's a continual command. Keep rejoicing in the Lord. And I love the fact that he repeats it twice, and here's, here's why. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and I, Paul knows the Philippian church, and he knows us. The Lord knows us, and this is the Lord speaking to us. He knows that right after that, we're going to say, rejoice in the Lord. Whoa, 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 hold on. But Paul, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. You have not seen my class schedule. You have not seen my cabinet full of ramen noodles. 
You don't understand all that I'm experiencing in my life and in my marriage, and you don't know what's going on with my children. You don't know my hurt and my pain. Paul, you don't know. And before we have the opportunity to say, Paul, you don't know, he says this, and again, I say rejoice. And you say, well, well, okay, I understand that, that there are times which we need to rejoice, and before we even go there, he adds this, rejoice in the Lord. What is the next word? Always. Say it again. Always. Now, again, I'm so thankful that Paul is saying this to us because if anyone had a legitimate excuse to not rejoice, it's Paul. I mean, just read the entire book of 2 Corinthians and all of his suffering and all that he endured. But yet Paul, who has suffered more than anyone, is writing us out of the fullness of his joy and commanding these suffering believers to continue to rejoice. And just when we can say, but Lord, you do not understand, he says, again, I say rejoice. And you say, well, well, Lord, you don't understand what's going on right now. He says, rejoice in the Lord always in all circumstances, removing all of our excuses. We are commanded to rejoice. It is not optional. Now listen to this. What I love about that idea that joy is not optional is simply by the fact that he commands it, and it's not optional, meaning we are commanded to do it, it also means that it's possible to do it. God's not going to command us to do something that's impossible to us to do. Now, it's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I said it's a deep feeling of delight in God produced by the Holy Spirit. You cannot manufacture this. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But listen, Paul shows us by his own life, and the Lord shows us by the nature of this command, it is not optional, meaning it is possible for you to find and experience joy. Joy matters to God. Joy is not optional. Write the third one down. Joy must be pursued. We're about to get practical. Joy must be pursued, okay? You got me? I want it. I know I'm supposed to have it. How, how do I get it? Let me give you the simple answer. You've got to go after it. You've got to go after it. This is a command. Rejoice in the Lord. It is in some ways a conscious decision, but I think it's more than that. This is not simply saying, okay, I'm just going to rejoice. No, I really believe that it is something that is produced in you, something that God is working in you. And listen, that hunger that you have, that desire that you have to experience joy, please, please listen carefully to me, is a desire you need to embrace. Don't run from it. Don't just assume that you're going to be disappointed and you're not going to find it. That desire for joy has been put there by the God who created, for you, created you. He wants you to experience that longing for joy, and the reason is this. Because once you come to understand what I'm going to show you in just a minute, every time you experience that longing for joy, it is to drive you to Jesus Christ where you'll find it. So God, who knows that you'll only be satisfied in Jesus, has given you a desire for joy to make you run to him because it says this, rejoice in the Lord. The root of the rejoicing is found in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Now we know that Paul's joy is not circumstantial. Read chapter 1 in verse 18 where he talks about his imprisonment and then he says about all of the people who are trying to inflict more harm on him in his, in, while he's imprisoned and then he says this, but I will rejoice. Yes, I rejoice. 
So this has to be something beyond circumstances. This is not joy because my experiences give me joy. No, this is flowing out of something much deeper. And that's why I said to you, it is a deep feeling, deep feeling of delight in God. It is something produced by the Holy Spirit that you must aggressively pursue. Listen to this. It is not wrong to pursue joy. You say, well, pastor, I don't know. I don't think you should pursue joy. You should just pursue Jesus. What I would say is that desire to go after joy is a desire that will only be fulfilled in Jesus. It's okay to have a longing for joy and say, I want joy so bad. As long as that longing takes you to Jesus and you know by faith that the only way you're ever going to get it is found in Jesus. It's okay to go after Jesus because you long to experience his joy. Listen to what George Mueller wrote in his journal a couple hundred years ago. He said this. Listen carefully. He said, my primary business I must attend to every day is to fellowship with the Lord. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord, but how my inner man might be nourished. I may share the truth with the unconverted. I may try to encourage believers. I may relieve the distressed, or I may in other ways seek to behave as a child of God, yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day may result in this work being done in a wrong spirit, end quote. What he's saying is this, my first business every day is to get up in the morning, get in the word of God, spend time with him, communion him, getting my heart happy in the Lord because the people around you need to experience the kind of joy that Jesus has put in your heart. Now you could read through scripture and find a ton of things that bring joy related to the Lord. His word brings joy. We see that in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Serving the Lord brings joy. Giving is to bring joy. Gathering for worship is one of the greatest sources of joy. Holiness, fighting sin brings joy. Because in Psalm 51, when David's confessing, he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, meaning sin robs you of joy. And so a pursuit of holiness then brings you joy. But let me make this as simple as I possibly can. Let me give you the absolute bottom line. In John 15, when Jesus says in verse 11, I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full, the these things he's referring to in verses 1 through 10 is the vine and the branches. Meaning, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does it mean by abide? It means simply this, to stay as closely connected to Jesus as you can closely connected to Jesus. So Jesus says, listen, I am calling you to stay close to me, to stay connected to me, to be intimate with me, and I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you. What is the bottom line of finding joy? The bottom line of finding joy is intimacy with Jesus Christ. Intimacy with Jesus Christ. Joy is the result of a continual pursuit of the Lord and it is in that pursuit that we will find out the truth of 1 John 5 3 when he says my commands are not burdensome because we will begin to understand that obedience to the Lord and intimacy with the Lord is the source of joy so can I plead with you to transition your spiritual walk from duty to desire for intimacy This is not about me doing a bunch of stuff. This is about me desiring to be intimate with Jesus because I believe by faith 
that only Jesus can satisfy and give me lasting joy. Joy must be pursued. Let me give you the last one. God cares about your joy. It matters to him. It is not optional. It must be pursued. The last one is this. Joy magnifies God. Listen carefully. We just a couple more minutes and we're done. Joy, joy magnifies God. What I mean is this. The more that you experience his joy, the more God gets glory from your life. Because listen, if you are experiencing joy and people are noticing joy in your life, then they're going to wonder what that joy is. And you're going to have the opportunity to tell them that is a joy that comes through my intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. God is glorified in that. I absolutely believe that on this point, John Piper is exactly right when he says this. God is most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in him. God is the most glorified in us. How can God receive the most glory from our lives when I find absolute satisfaction in Jesus Christ? When I'm not reaching for a thousand other things, I'm simply just going hard after Jesus. Why? Because I know that in him is the desires of my heart. And so it is that as I'm going after him and I'm satisfied in him, God is glorified because we are then living a life that demonstrates that God is all satisfying. That he's enough. That he's better than everything else the world has to offer. New students, let me just plead with you to pursue Christ in such a way that your life displays Jesus is enough. He's good. He's better than anything else the world has to offer. It's one thing to preach it. It's another thing to experience it by your pursuit of him. Going hard after joy is an absolute demonstration of faith because you're believing that Jesus means what he says when he says that the only way you will find joy is in me. It's faith. God, I believe that the only way my heart will ever be satisfied and be joyful and the only way my life will ever be for your glory is if I'm intimate with you and so I'm going hard after you in hopes that you might fill me with your spirit that my life might be a display of your joy. I don't know of many things more damaging to the kingdom than a believer with a perpetual, discouraged, and defeated, and sad countenance. What a terrible testimony. But on the other hand, a believer who has experienced intimacy with Christ and the result is the joy of the Holy Spirit displays the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you this morning, how's your joy? How's your joy? Are you you experiencing the joy of the Lord? If not, is it because through a series of discouragements or whatever it may be, disappointments, you've neglected to even acknowledge that desire in your heart? Is it, listen, is it because of a hidden sin? Have you lost the joy because you're hiding from sin and you're refusing to acknowledge that sin and confess it and have the joy restored? Is it because you're not pursuing Christ? You're not trusting and following Jesus? You may have said a prayer when you were younger, but the fact is, is that you don't know Jesus. You're not pursuing him. So let me ask you, are you trusting and following Jesus? Are you pursuing joy in him? Because the Lord is calling you this morning. He's calling you to answer the desire in your heart for joy and as a result, to run to him and to find it in him. May it be so of all of us this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.